Good afternoon. It's Friday the 15th of May 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today in the studio, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Um, well, we said we wouldn't put the stats uh, on screen again uh, on Wednesday, but, well, we're going to put them up uh, slightly differently. want to make this point. Cases in England are now down. New cases, 515 yesterday. Uh, that means that R in London is now 04 um, so should we still be on DEFCON 4 uh, on Boris's, uh, Boris's gr uh, range? Uh, I'm not certain. Certainly it looks like we should. The, the corona trip meter. The corona trip meter, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, well, of course, uh, we can't say how many recoveries there have been because uh, the UK is not publishing this information uh, along with the Netherlands. I'm not really clear why. Nobody has, uh, has seems to have asked that question. Certainly there's no answer. Would, do you know what that means? If you don't have the recoveries, it means that the R number is more or less uh, useless uh, because out of context, the, the R not number doesn't mean anything. It can only mean something in relation to things like recoveries or length of infections of any particular infected person, you know, short or long length of infection. So the, the R number itself um, is meaningless, Mike. Uh, if you strip out the context, and a lot of a lot of people uh, and journalists are writing about this now, they're absolutely shocked that the UK government has is clinging to the R number and using it as the centerpiece, as the ballast uh, for the entire, or as Boris would say, the buttress for the entire policy. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. Re read some of the uh, criticisms on this, Mike. It's fascinating. Uh, well, okay. Public Health England then has published a nice uh, infographic uh, showing the number of cases uh, and how it is declining. Uh, this is daily uh, cases. So uh, really, why are we still in lockdown? This is the question. Uh, but you don't need to worry, Patrick, because Abbott Pharmaceuticals has been given the job of... Uh, producing an antibody test, and that antibody test has been approved now by Public Health England. Uh, now, Abbott Laboratories, a U.S. multinational medical devices healthcare company uh, with uh, headquarters in the United States, uh, also in the U.K. Uh, so uh, Abbott is uh, a long-term user of the uh, double Irish tax structure. So this is another example of uh, uh, the U.K. government supporting those types of companies that uh, like to shall we say, in inverted commas, possibly evade uh, corporation tax by uh, domiciling in Ireland. Uh, good to see that that's going to a multinational rather than a UK-based company. Yes, indeed. Um, so uh, let's see, where does that take us then? Uh, well, Mr. Fauci, what's he up to? Well, this is in the US, Mike. And just to pay a little attention to the picture below, this is a bar that's uh, supposedly open for business. They put in tubing, plastic, uh, masks and everything. It looks like a lot of fun there in the United States. Looks like a scene out of the 12 Monkeys with Bruce Willis. But uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, Dr. Fauci is warning uh, in a recent uh, uh, testimony to uh, Congress that, that the United States will suffer uh, more death if it reopens too soon, Mike. So this is the talking point. There's a real big push in the United States to, to, to press home the case for keeping the lockdown. Uh, as long as possible for fear of a second wave. All of this is predicated on second wave theory, uh, which is what we're, from this day forward, we're going to be calling it second wave theory because that's what it is. It's a theory, and it just doesn't correlate, Mike, with how viruses behave. You showed that graph just a, a minute ago, Mike, 
That's the normal progression, the normal trajectory of any respiratory virus. So where does the second wave theory come from? This is the question. Um, so uh, uh, Dr. Fauci, or whatever he is, uh, decided he, to give some uh, a little bit of video to this organization, this uh, CTV News organization? No, this, this was actually gone out um, nationally um, on the AP, but we're just using this outlet. But let's listen to what Emperor Fauci has to say. My concern is that if states or cities or regions, uh, in their attempt, understandable, to get back to some form of normality, disregard to a greater or lesser degree the checkpoints that we put in our guidelines about when it is safe to proceed in pulling back on mitigation. Because I feel if that occurs, there is a real risk that you will trigger an outbreak that you may not be able to control, which in fact, paradoxically, will set you back, not only leading to some suffering and death that could be avoided, but could even set you back on the road to trying to get economic recovery. Sound a bit croaky there, Patrick? It is incredible. So you have these unelected um, health, health officials who are basically deciding the uh, destiny of the country, or basically running uh, the country, and the media are completely behind uh, Fauci and these sort of experts uh, to extend the lockdown. And there's a whole wave of propaganda right now that's coming out. You'll see it in the press, which is that there's no proof that COVID-19 will tail off in the summer or that the virus will be adversely affected by warm weather, Mike. We've got one such story here. This one is in Business Insider. Notice the headline, why no one knows if COVID-19 is seasonal. Well, that's a, a misleading headline, Mike, because we actually do know if it's seasonal uh, because we have other coronaviruses that we've studied as well as a seasonal influenza, and they all behave more or less the same. But for some reason, COVID is given special status mm -hmm. from the beginning, which is that we don't know anything about COVID. That's the first lie. Whenever you hear that, COVID is different. We don't know anything about COVID. When you hear that coming from the mouths of politicians, journalists or experts. All you have to do is, is read their lips and you know that they're lying at that point. Um, there's plenty of scientific studies uh, over years about the behavior of seasonal influenza and coronaviruses and there's a number of reasons why uh, they do subside in the summer. So again, this what they're doing, Mike, is prepping the public to believe in second wave theory um, so and to be worried about second wave theory just long enough in order to keep this lockdown extended. And the question is, what is the agenda? And as we were reporting on Wednesday's program, they're building this narrative that uh, once we get towards the seasonal flu season in the autumn and the winter, it's going to be very difficult to separate out the COVID cases from the flu cases. We're not going to know which is which. We're not going to know what's causing which spike in the statistics. Uh, and really, we're going to be straight back into lockdown again. Well, that's what it looks like. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so what's Boris uh, saying then? Uh, stay alert, control the virus, save lives, but he wants to extend the lockdown. He does. That, that was the messaging. So the new colors, uh, the new safety colors. So the government wants to extend lockdown because, now the question is, Mike, why? What is the agenda going forward? What is the real agenda? Well, they want to push the crisis to the autumn. Why? Because they want to implement contact tracing, mass testing. This is all part of, under the banner, Mike, of surveillance. Okay, and then after that, there seems to be a lot of push in media and in political circles uh, for mandated vaccines. 
uh, for coronavirus, even though they haven't actually developed a vaccine for it yet. There's this assumption uh, that there's going to be some call or some mandate for coronavirus mm. uh, vaccines. And so let's put aside the vaccine debate for the moment, uh, but back to the agenda. And here's the important part, and I think you've covered this, uh, and you might have some comment on this, but uh, restructuring government, repurposing government, but also, more importantly, restructuring the economy, and really repurposing the economy as well to deal with the, the, the new normal, Mike. And the new normal is there are tens of millions of people on welfare now as a result of the government shutdown. And the media and political classes will want to blame this on the coronavirus, but it wasn't the coronavirus that shut down the economy. It was the government that shut down the economy. That's the most important point. How can I say that? Because not every country opted to do a shutdown or a lockdown. And those countries who didn't opt to do that are doing perfectly fine right now. So this wasn't about the coronavirus giving orders to the prime minister or the chancellor. This was the government making that decision for the people. And as we'll show you very shortly, you know, when we talk about the economics, Mike, um, the people will be expected to pay for the damage that's been done as a result of this government decision. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the restructure of the economy and who is actually uh, pushing forward with this. Um, we'll just uh, we'll just begin uh, with with this one. This is uh, not city. That's a bit of autocorrection on uh, on the uh, on the slide there for the spelling. That's of course Sadiq Khan, uh, the mayor of London. Uh, and what did he say? Uh, uh, yesterday, I have a legal duty to reduce bus and rail services to save money if the government doesn't bail out Transport for London. This is a slight paraphrase of what he said, but he basically threatened the government that he would shut down public transport in London uh, unless the government provided a bailout uh, for Transport for London by the end of the day. It was very mafiosi-style comment. Um, and, uh, and, well, the government did exactly that. By the end of the day, the tre Treasury... Uh, stomped up with, uh, rocked up with 1.6 billion pounds for Transport for London. Uh, that was apparently the funding gap that they had, uh, and that's what they got. And I just thought that was a pretty incredible situation that uh, Sadiq Khan uh, can come along and make threats like this, and no problem. There you go. Who is the boss? This is the question. When we're talking about restructuring government, uh, we're devolution a big part of that, not just to regions and countries, but to, to cities. Uh, and city mayors now seeming to, to hold the, the cards in terms of uh, the power in the country. So just bang your pots and pans together and the magic money tree magically magically comes up with money at the end. So so this sets kind of a dangerous precedent, Mike, in the sense that um, every city or every, every region could effectively do this if they want to hold uh, the government hostage uh, for bailout funds. So again, Mike, the, the point... Getting back to the original point, this situation was not started by the coronavirus. This situation, this vicious cycle we're in now of bailout after bailouts, triggering more bailouts and inflation and unemployment, this is a direct result of the government's policy to lock the country down, to shut the country down. Not just that, Mike. In the, in the face of new data, we know that infections peaked, uh, according to the Institute in Oxford for Evidence-Based Medicine. We know infections peaked. Uh, around March 23rd, and we know that hospitalizations and deaths peaked on April 8th. That's a fact. Here we are in the middle of May, and the government's saying they need to extend the lockdown even further. 
another month or two when we know that the crisis already peaked at the end of March, beginning of April. So there's a lot of questions I think that the government should be asking, but I don't see the press asking those questions. Now, one of the things, uh, Patrick, that is uh, uh, surprising me slightly um, is the position of the unions on this. Now, I want to make a point that I'm not making any political statement here. So this is not about right-wing or left-wing politics. This is uh, about looking at what the unions are saying and what the unions are doing. Now, if we go back over the last 20 or 40 years, uh, the unions have been pushing for jobs, absolutely promoting jobs, promoting the economy, promoting manufacturing, doing all the things that unions should be doing. Okay, yes. Workers' rights. Workers' rights, these kinds of things. Now, but workers' rights, Patrick, seems to have changed now because now it's all about safety. And the end, the, the, the destination of this position that the unions are taking at the moment seems to be very similar to the destination of the government, an extension of the lockdown, uh, a collapse of the economy. And ultimately, I don't know how the unions are serving their members' interests by taking the position that they're taking at the moment. But let's have a look at it. Uh, we start off with the NHS. And of course, the question is, how does the NHS get restarted? And even this talking point is, is uh, interesting because there's a, therefore a tacit acknowledgement that the NHS has not been doing its job uh, over the last uh, uh, period of time, the last three months or so. Um, so here is uh, Unison. Uh, health unions publish blueprint for safe opening of the NHS, all about safety. It's all about PPE, of course, is the excuse. And they're basically saying that, you know, not that elective surgery, uh, that the tests and, and other things that, that, that people normally expect to receive uh, from the uh, health service should really be uh, held back until the safety culture can be uh, established. So they're calling, they're saying that, they, that it needs to be a safety first approach to outpatient clinics and to operations. Uh, they said they want to avoid a repeat of the PPE supply problems, which, quote, sapped the confidence of the staff and caused widespread and unnecessary anxiety. Um, now, just to, to give an impression or an understanding of what the situation was with the National Health Service, unfortunately, we had to go to the BBC because uh, Public Health England haven't actually published on their website these statistics yet. Uh, but uh, this uh, report from yesterday saying coronavirus A&E visits in England down to record low and they produced this graph showing the, uh, the, the number of visits to accident and emergency uh, in April. It, it runs up to the end of April there. Incredible. Look at that drop, Mike. It, it's, it's massive. And so, you know, we have been banging this drum for the last couple of weeks, Patrick, about excess mortality as a result of COVID-19. And we've got to keep thinking about this and understanding the implications of it. Uh, that really what we're seeing in the red-shaded red area are lockdown deaths. And the reason that those people are dying is because the NHS has effectively been shut down for everything else other than, um, other than th this particular emergency, in inverted commas. So if that's the case, um, then what the unions appear to be saying is that lockdown deaths, the number of deaths, uh, caused by the lockdown and the fact that the NHS isn't functioning except for one particular area uh, seems to be to the unions acceptable. Uh, now, I appreciate that there's, there's a trade-off here, but you know, they don't seem to be uh, demanding that lives are saved by providing medical care to people that are not COVID 
related. So basically you're saying the, the National Health Service has become a COVID-only service. That's what it has been up to this point. Really, yes. in the last, say, seven to eight weeks, right? right? It's been a COVID-only service. So now they're threatening to uh, withhold the reopening, uh, as it were, of the NHS as, as business as usual, right? Uh, because of what? Safety threats? Uh, because of threat of COVID? Well, there's, there's, there's some fundamental problems with this position, Mike. One of them is uh, the virus is, is, is already peaked uh, over a month ago, okay? It actually peaked infections uh, before lockdown, okay? So uh, it's tailing off. We're going into the summer. It should extinguish itself. Some herd immunity should be achieved, okay? That's the first point. So there's not going to be a threat from COVID-19 to all health service workers. The other thing is we know by statistics, overwhelmingly, this disease afflicts a specific demographic. Uh, it is the elderly, the average age of the COVID deaths is, is up upwards of 80 years old. Okay, so there aren't that many 80-year-old uh, uh, people working in the NHS, are there? There's none. So the, the risk of an NHS worker uh, di uh, becoming ill or dying from COVID, according to the numbers, is is almost non-existent, especially if they're if they're under 50 years old. Mm. Okay, it's almost no chance at all if you're under 40. So, um, wh you know, where is this coming from? Where is this health and safety uh, uh, alert, this this emergency coming from? Um, if anything, the people that are most at risk are the elderly people themselves, who have been shoved into care homes shoved off of beds in the NHS by government policy, thrown into care homes. Why? To open up beds for what? The COVID-only health service. Mm -hmm. So th there's so many fundamental problems with the argument from the union here. I understand the, the need to feel safe, but what is the actual threat? That is the question. It's not about uh, I need to feel safe. What is the genuine threat if there is a threat? I mean, it, are the measures being proposed by by the unions proportionate to the actual threat? That's the question. And the government, we can ask the government the same question, Mike. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but in the meantime, the government has decided that uh, Honeywell, uh, this time in Scotland, is going to get the contract for producing uh, the next round of PPE equipment. Uh, sorry, 4.5 million masks each month and 450 jobs uh, at that site. Uh, it's going to cost... Uh, uh, quite a bit of money, um, but so P uh, they're also highlighting the PPE distribution network with the NHS industry and armed forces all working together to get this stuff distributed across the NHS. But nonetheless, Honeywell uh, getting the, the job to produce uh, the next batch of ma masks. But it doesn't end there, Patrick, because the unions uh, are also very keen to stop the schools reopening uh, because, again, there are dangers here. So uh, they are... Uh, saying here it's really important that we're absolutely clear what the level of safety is and if it remains the case that we believe it to be unsafe, we will not back a wider opening of schools. Now, of course, their highlight, this is uh, the National Education Union highlight, uh, suggesting in their headline that this is all about the science. Um, I'm not seeing any evidence whatsoever that there's any science uh, being uh, implemented here or, or thought about. Uh, but, you know, if we look at what's going on in France, Patrick, uh, is this really what we want for our school children in the UK? Is this the model that we're, that we're looking at, uh, where we've got uh, rectangles drawn on the school playground and the children aren't allowed out of those boxes? I mean, this is, um, <laughs> I'm sorry to say it again, but this is going to have a, a massive psychological effect on these children.
Um, and uh, if that's run out, rolled out in the UK, it's pretty sad. It gets back to the original argument. By the way, the social engineering uh, overtones of that picture, Mike, are just um, outrageous. Incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's breathtaking. But, Mike, what, what, what exactly is the threat to students uh, going back to school? For COVID nineteen, let's talk about this. The majority we're talking about students, right? Mm -hmm. Most most of the schools are filled with students, not teachers. The, the teachers are in the minority, right? Administrators and teachers. As far as the students are concerned, Mike, what is the risk uh, percentage wise? I mean, it's, it's, is it even does it even register no. on, on the risk table for students? No, because it's they're seen to be um, almost exclusively asymptomatic. Carriers, they don't spread. A lot of studies are now showing serology studies and other studies where they've tracked the virus. Mike, kids are not spreading it to adults. Okay, asymptomatic children are not spreading this to adults. So a few teachers who are concerned about their safety are holding up school openings for millions of children because they don't feel safe? Well, one solution to this could be, Mike, that the teachers who don't feel safe could stay home and maybe do something else, uh, administration or be on a government furlough scheme, and those who want to teach um, can teach. Because what are the odds of an under 40 uh, uh, catching or being hospitalized of COVID? It's extremely low. In fact, the odds of, of you catching the flu at a younger age and being hospitalized are higher than if you catch COVID. That's according to the statistics. Uh, the argument, I think, from some people is that uh, if, is it okay, if a teacher gets it in the school or the child is asymptomatic but is a carrier, that they could bring it back to their grandparents or whatever. That, that seems to be the argument that's being made. Uh, again, but that, th th this, th is about, th this is about managing the grandparents, not managing the, the children. In but this that case. doesn't follow the science because the science shows that children aren't shedding the virus to old people. So, I mean, where, where are people getting their information on this? Mm. It's unbelievable. There's, we're, we're, we're missing that joined-up thinking that we hear about so much in government, Mike. Uh, where's, the, where's the joined-up thinking? We're waiting for it. Um, and it doesn't end there because the unions, of course, also taking this position on the general economy. Uh, furlough extension welcome, but advice may leave good employers undercut by bad bosses. And they're pushing this idea that, that, that some employers are bad employers, that they're trying to force workers back into an unsafe work environment, uh, that uh, really people should, should uh, consider whether they are happy to go back to work. Um, and, of course, the fact that the furlough uh, scheme, the, this is the scheme where the government uh, provides uh, salaries for, to, to encourage employers to keep people on their, uh, on their employment roles, um, that that has been extended to the, to the end of October. Of course, this pushes, just pushes back the unemployment situation by a couple of months because ultimately uh, companies, if they were intending to lay somebody off at the end of the furlough scheme, well, the end of the furlough scheme has been pushed back. It doesn't mean that they aren't going to lay somebody off. And in fact, uh, everything that everybody's saying to us is that because the furlough scheme has been pushed back another three months, well, of course, that helps them with um, the... Uh, fixed cost of, of salaries, but it doesn't help them with rent uh, and other fixed costs that, that, uh, that, that they have. And so, they're not making profits during that time. Exactly. So they are probably going to, uh, this is going to exacerbate the cash flow problem for, yeah. for many small and medium-sized businesses. So, uh, but again, the unions here pushing this idea that it's unsafe to go back to work. Uh, again, where's the science behind that? And really, are they supporting their members in terms of 
their incomes and their jobs in the, in the medium to long term? Well, no, I don't think they are. What they seem to be doing is following the same uh, policy objective that government is. It is. I, I think the unions, a lot of people in the unions might be short-sighted on this issue, Mike, because I think what's happened is there is a, a faction on the, uh, the left, or the, say more on the kind of extreme left, the radical left, that's taking advantage of this crisis, in, I, I might add, in a very cynical way, mm -hmm. in order to increase leverage or increase power. Uh, and we're talking on the more extreme uh, end of the, of the left wing there. And, uh, and that includes the uh, radical socialists and the communists as well. Uh, they've also reared their heads. And all of this, this motley co coalition uh, that supposedly for the worker uh, is, is really effectively keeping the worker from earning a living, Mike. And that's all well and good, as you said, as, as long as the government's picking up uh, some of the wage bill for a few months. But what happens after that? Again, I'm, I'm saying that this, this is extremely short-sighted and it smacks of political opportunism and a power play, almost a Trotskyite power play. We'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, so let's head back to the United States then, uh, and Jeff Bezos. Well, if only it was uh, confined to the United States, Mike, because Jeff is uh, world-dominating now. And, and this is one of the big complaints you have from the uh, activists who are calling for a general strike, is that the, uh, uh, the, we shouldn't go and serve the capitalist uh, billionaire class. Well, here's Jeff Bezos, and we want to bring capitalism to a grinding halt. Well, Jeff Bezos is doing just fine. Uh, with the lockdown, Mike, uh, he's on track to become a trillionaire by 2026, despite the economy-killing pandemic and losing 38 million. Imagine that billion. billion. Oh my gosh, on your divorce, that'll keep you uh, up uh, up at night. There he is, and we've got a shot of his good eye there, or maybe not. That's his left eye, smaller. But uh, this is what it says: While the coronavirus has ravaged the economy, forcing 36 million Americans to file for unemployment over the past two months. U.S. billionaires quickly saw their collective wealth rebound by $282 billion, uh, about 9.5% between March 18th uh, and also April 10th, uh, according to the Institute for Policy Studies. So, the, the, so this is actually uh, causing the, the great divide between the rich and poor to be, become wider? There was a record wealth gap before this crisis, Mike. And the crisis, the lockdown, has only extended the wealth gap. Because if you have money and you have power, you can wait out the crisis. And again, as we said months ago, that you can buy up the competition mm -hmm. for pennies on the dollar. And, and by that time, anybody who wants to work will be desperate for work. Mm -hmm. There will be less jobs. So that could effectively drive wages down, Mike, in terms of supply and demand mm -hmm. uh, because of the labor market. So the unions are playing into the billionaire's agenda. I think, and one could make this argument, but again, very short-sighted, and why, why are they short-sighted? Because they don't see the big picture, and here is the big picture, and we've warned about this and spoken about it many times, but when you talk to some of the more traditional left-wingers, they don't seem to be very au fait or even aware of this trend. We're talking about the fourth industrial revolution, and here we have the, economic, the World Economic Forum in Davos, and here's the headline, how the fourth industrial revolution can help us beat COVID-19. Mm -hmm. They're talking about remote working. They're talking about robotics, AI, big data, driving the agenda. Here we go, from big data to AI, the tool of the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, these tools are being put to use to combat the pandemic. Not just that, to replace 
the tools that were there before to re replace parts of the economy, Mike, mm -hmm. and parts of society, and also parts of government as well. This goes into restructuring government. So this is going to supplant real people from jobs is what it is. So this is only accelerating us. And until these people wake up and realize that this is a real trend, this is what the elites at the World Economic Forum have been talking about and planning for the last 10 years, is to get rid of the workers, put them on UBI, and God knows what to do with them after that. Use your imagination, okay? But um, so they, they're totally disinterested in these trends. So one has to ask the question, are, are they disinterested because they're ignorant, or are they disinterested because they really want to go in that direction, and they're only wanting to hasten this kind of UBI utopia, this Logan's Run type uh, world uh, that seems to be uh, being advocated by the, the likes of the great and the good at Davos. But let's just break it down and kind of explain it here. This is where we are right now. That's the third industrial revolution. We're talking about electronics, IT systems and automation, and we're making the transition, Mike, to the fourth industrial revolution, and that's on target for 2030. And if you read the UN's uh, 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, they're very much harmonized with this idea of a transition to a fourth industrial revolution. That means a lot more people, Mike, are going to be not working, okay? What will they be doing? What will they be required to do by government that's been repurposed, by society that's been repurposed? That's mm -hmm. the question. What will they be required to do? Volunteer, fight wars? Who knows? Picking up litter on the side of the of the highway? I don't know. But this is the problem here. And if you just let's turn this into a timeline, we have the first industrial revolution there, 1784, Mike, the steam engine, the steam revolution, and then we move to 1870. That's the division of labor and manufacturing. That's industrial 2.0. Then we have Industrial 3.0, which we showed you, you know, the beginnings of IT, electronics, automation. And then, of course, uh, here we are today, moving into the fourth Industrial Revolution. And from a political, ideological point of view, this is where kind of Marxist thinking is stuck. It's in really stuck in 1920. And the problem is, we're here. We're in 2021 now. So they're really 100 years behind uh, in their sort of political calculus. And the problem is, Mike, is acad academia is loaded with kind of orthodox Marxist uh, left-wing academics who've been uh, bestowing this upon their students for decades, okay, but really kind of training them to relive 1920 again. And meanwhile, the great and the good, the billionaire class that they so uh, uh, admonish at every given uh, opportunity, and rightfully so in some cases, yeah. um, they're already moving way past the 20th century now. So you're either going to get up to date with what's going on and realize what elites are planning, what they have planned for you, otherwise you're going to get basically left in the dust of history. And this is what we're seeing now, and this, the, the, the call for a general strike, I think, is the death pangs of a 20th century ignorant political class that just is desperate to drag people backwards. And, and in fact, they've become the reactionaries in that sense. They've become the reactionaries, and they're acting like reactionaries. So that might be a controversial statement for some people, but it sure looks like it. Well, you know, people need to, to, to think this through. And if you, you know, as usual, if you don't agree with us, let us know and we'll, we'll address it. Uh, but anyway, uh, back uh, in April, this was uh, April the 14th, the 
uh, Office for Budget Responsibility produced their forecast for what was going to happen to the economy as a result of, uh, of COVID-19. And as we can see on the right-hand side, uh, well, we called uh, what they'd done at the end of their graph there uh, the dead cat bounce, because as you can see, it's never been seen in the history of economics. Uh, and uh, so uh, this was their proposal. Uh, this is what they actually said. Uh, they said that uh, real GDP falls of 35% in the second quarter. Uh, public sector net borrowing increases by 218 billion in 2020 to 21. Uh, sharp rise in borrowing this year, largely reflecting the impact of economic disruption on receipts. Uh, and the public sector net debt rises sharply in 2020 to 21, thanks to lower GDP, higher borrowing, and the accounting consequences of the uh, Bank of England's policy measures. Uh, well, they have updated this uh, this advice yesterday. So let's just look and see what they're saying now. Uh, basically, um, updated yesterday, real GDP uh, is going to fall, they say, in quarter two by 35 wow. percent in one quarter. But they say, don't worry, it's going to come back by 27 percent in quarter three. <laughs> Does, it, does that it, not leave us with a net loss, Mike? Of, oh, oh uh, it does. It leaves us with uh, a net loss for 2020 of minus 12.8 percent, right? right? So, but, uh, but enjoy the bounce in Q3. Uh, absolutely. So they say. Uh, well, absolutely. Now, where the question is, where does that leave jobs? Uh, well, they're saying that there's going to be uh, 10 percent uh, un unemployment rate in quarter two. Uh, that that will come back to eight and a half percent in quarter three. Uh, which will leave uh, uh, an average in 2020 of 7.3%. Now, anybody that remembers the recession of the early or around the early 80s or so knows how hard that is. When you're talking about three, four, five million people unemployed, they stay unemployed for a very long time. So the Office for Budget Responsibility can claim, if they like that the uh, uh, rebound in quarter three is going to be 27%. But in terms of impact on people's lives, <clears throat> that is going to have very, very little impact on anybody who has found themselves in that unemployment category, because it'll take a very long time before those jobs come back. And in fact, you've just made the, as you've just made the point about the fourth industrial revolution, perhaps those jobs aren't ever coming back. And the COVID sort of hypochondria society, Mike, with social distancing, that's going to guarantee that a lot of jobs are not coming back. I think that's Especially right. Especially in the service sector and in the sort of restaurant sector, the cafe, the, the catering sector. They're, that they're going to be completely wiped out. Half the industry is going to be wiped out. Yes. So let's, uh, let's look then at their uh, estimates of what is going to happen with uh, public sector net borrowing. Uh, they're saying that in 2020 to 21, that will now be 298 0.4 billion pounds, 300 billion pounds, basically, is where we're going with that uh, over that year. I, I might say, Mike, you can, you can, anybody who's a hawk who's watching uh, economics and government, Mike, always double two figures. You can always double the unemployment rate and get the real figure and inflation. Those are two things you can double. And when they say they're going to borrow 300 billion, Mike, you can double that as well. I think that's so, fair, a fair statement. So I'll put my score down right now. Everything you see there, Mike, in terms of figures, double it afterwards and we can see. Indeed. So where does that leave uh, public sector net debt? Uh, well, they're saying that uh, it'll, in 2020 to 21, it'll be 95.8 billion. Uh, sorry, sorry 95.8 percent of GDP, which is, you know, a huge, a huge figure. Now, you've already made the point about what's going on in the United States, Patrick, but let's just put it up again. Uh, this is the New York Times saying rolling shock as job losses mount even with reopenings. 
36 million people unemployed. Uh, that's already over 10, well, is that over 10%? It's around the 10% mark anyway, isn't it? Well, of the population, but uh, in terms of employ, uh, uh, yes. work-age people, it's right. much beyond the 10%. Like, you're, you're getting into sort of 20, 25% territory right now in terms of real terms. Not only that, they're probably fudging that statistic uh, because they're not counting people who are in the gig economy or partially part-time people or people with two part-time jobs. Uh, but the point here is, Patrick, that uh, when we see the mainstream media coverage of this, they're talking about recession, a significant recession, a serious recession. But actually what's already happening in the United States is depression it's levels a, of yeah. unemployment uh, and, and hardship for people. Uh, I, I think I saw That's a report right. yesterday from Philadelphia, which is one of the states which is being most... Because, of course, the, part of the problem here is 36 million jobs. It's not spread evenly across the whole country. There's there's massive hotspots of where the real problems lie. Philadelphia is one of them. Uh, those people suffering already extremely badly, and you don't have in the states the same uh, social security support that we have? No, there's not. We don't have nearly the level of socialization and um, safety net. Like, but the other thing is interesting. You said that uh, it's not evenly spread the unemployment across the country evenly. This is true, but also neither is COVID. The COVID crisis uh, is not evenly distributed across the United States. There's some states with almost no infections and almost no deaths, really, but they're under these lockdown orders. And I think we have this insane cadre of governors in the United States, Mike, I mean, just completely uh, uh, out of control, and it seems to me intoxicated by their power. Well, there's been some challenges to that, which we'll go touch uh, in a few minutes, Mike. Mm. Um, okay, so uh, the government decision to lock down then? Well, government decision to lock down. And the question is, Mike, who's going to pay? Well, I guess the people are going to pay. What are we going to pay? So it's, let's get this straight. The government decided to lock down, but the people are going to have austerity. Now, the last time austerity was imposed by David Cameron, Mike, that was really a 10-year cycle, wasn't it? We're just coming out of it last year. So you can expect a decade. So what? Until 2030, welfare cuts raising income tax, raising VAT, raising national insurance, pensions cut, so an end, an end to the inflation index, which was hard fought for, Mike, getting pensions to be up to speed with the rate of inflation. Uh, so that would, according to the government, Mike, raise uh, income for the government between 25 and 30 billion. They, they could claw back by imposing that level of suffering. But the magic money tree was just turned on last month. What's 25 to 30 billion? Why make the people suffer for 10 years? And God knows what damage that's going to do to people's lives and society. When the magic money tree, that was only what? Was that a week worth of magic money tree funds or less? Mm. Five days worth? Why are they doing it? Why, why, why do we need to impose austerity to pay back a government decision to lock down? You can't blame the coronavirus, Mike. At some point, people have to blame the government. But it doesn't end there because it looks like green tax levies are on oh, the horizon. Right. Mm -hmm. And you, you know what that means. We'll bring Greta in there. How dare you? How dare you not pay your green levies, says Greta Thunberg. Um, so uh, we're going to have massive debt. We're going to have massive austerity. It looks very, very likely. Uh, but uh, are we going to be able to feed ourselves is the next question. And this is the grocer here. And their headline is uh, food security. Are we cutting food too fine? 
with our just-in-time supply chain. Uh, and they're saying the coronavirus crisis has provided a stern test for the just-in-time supply chain, uh, which, seems to, which it seems to have passed. Well, perhaps. Uh, but with further threats around the corner, some suggest we should be rethinking the way we stock supermarket shelves. So they're particularly concerned about the fact that uh, Brexit's still there to be done. Uh, President Trump apparently is responsible for our food chain uh, because he's triggering late-night geopolitical battles. Uh, and this is potentially hazardous to the food chain. And climate change, Greta, again, at her work, uh, disrupting the food chain uh, because, uh, uh, you know, that is a problem too. Is this what they're saying? This is pretty much what they're saying. Now, the question is then, what's the UK government or parliament doing about this? Well, they're holding an inquiry about this. Third public uh, evidence session is going to take place next Tuesday. So this is the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Select Committee. And they're going to hold this third uh, evidence session. Uh, Ian Wright from the Food and Drink Federation, Nick Allen from British Meat Processors, and uh, James Bealby from, uh, from Federation of Wholesale Distributors is going to be uh, there giving evidence. And they are examining the challenges the coronavirus has raised for the food processing and wholesale sectors in this particular evidence session. And they intend to produce a report on this, on, on how capable we are going to be. Can I just say, Mike, that is a, that's a fetching Soviet supermarket picture there. I thought so. Perfectly acceptable. Yes. Uh, in the days of Uncle Joe. Lovely. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. But the, uh, the question is, is that what we're looking forward to? Uh, and uh, it looks uh, like it, it certainly looks like it. Yeah. With our eyes. So the question is, how long is this uh, ridiculousness, this nonsense going to continue. Yes. Uh, now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there, and that would be very much appreciated. Uh, let's move quickly on, Patrick, uh, to Wisconsin. What's going on there? Well, we talked earlier, Mike, about challenges uh, to the way government is making decisions with regards to lockdowns and the COVID crisis. Well, here's one that just came in this week. This is a stunning victory uh, by the people of the state. So the Wisconsin Supreme Court uh, has turned in, uh, it looks like a majority, four to three decision in the high court, the first of its kind, by the way. Uh, and basically they're saying uh, unelected officials cannot create law. And uh, this is what uh, we're looking at here. So an unelected official uh, could create law. Sorry about the, <laughs> the threat. The threat letter font. <laughs> An unelected official could create law applicable to all people during the course of COVID-19 and subject people to imprisonment uh, when they disobey her. They're talking about the health secretary, Palm's orders. So basically, they're saying, like Fauci types and the state health secretary, making these dictates. In other words, you must extend the lockdown to, to, to June. On what basis or what authority are they doing that? So this is the question, Mike. Do we have a scientific dictatorship or do we have a democracy? Simple question. That's a very good question. Because a lot of people don't know the answer to that right now. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, uh, it is a good question and perhaps this uh, hints at an answer. Now, we mentioned this last week. This is General Sir Nick Carter who was giving uh, what, part of the briefing for one of the live streams. Uh, and uh, he was making this point. We've been involved with the Cabinet Office Rapid Response Unit, with our 77th Brigade helping to quash rumours for misinformation, but also counter disinformation. And this was the key point here. Uh, between three and 4,000 people, military personnel involved with this, around 20,000 available the whole time in high readiness. Now, uh, 
this has received a huge amount of criticism from within the military. It sounds, Patrick, to us uh, from people that, we've, uh, that have been talking to us uh, that uh, there is a lot of uh, unhappiness that this amount of uh, military effort is going into this kind of uh, uh, work. Uh, because they're effectively spying on the uh, on the British people and, and war, trolling and trolling the British people and helping to drive the government's narrative with respect to the lockdown and and the coronavirus response. Um, so uh, uh, the information we have is that uh, senior uh, staff within even within the British military extremely unhappy with uh, with Nick Carter and his his uh, position on this and the way that the the, the direction of travel of of the uh, of the British military, but it, uh, it doesn't end there. Others also pretty unhappy with the current situation. This is uh, Peter Bone. Uh, he is uh, uh, a, a member of parliament for uh, Wellingborough uh, and very, very unhappy during a parliamentary debate yesterday on coronavirus about the way that the British government is acting. And this comes back to the slide that you've just shown, Patrick, because he's particularly unhappy about the executive orders that Boris Johnson is basically doing without any kind of parliamentary scrutiny uh, or, or uh, um, Oversight. Oversight. Thank you. That is the word I was looking for. Uh, and he made, the, he made this point on page 23. This is of the ministerial code. On page 23 under section ministers in parliament says in bold type, when parliament is in session, the most important announcements of government policy should be made in the first instance in parliament. And he was really criticizing Boris because when he gave his, his broadcast to the nation on Sunday evening, uh, he was announcing policy without it ever having been subject to parliamentary scrutiny. And this is really unacceptable for parliament. Poll voting over parliament basically by, by going straight. Yes, uh, so he said that clearly the prime minister's television address breached the ministerial code. He's effectively saying it's unlawful, therefore. Uh, he went on, the television presentation was, was plain wrong. Uh, too many of the prime minister's special advisors and aides think they're running a presidential government that the Prime Minister goes on television and announces all kinds of executive orders with any reference, without any reference to Parliament. Many of them have clearly been watching too many episodes of the West Wing. And I think this is a valid criticism. But it, isn't it interesting, one of the themes of this programme, Patrick, it seems to me, has been that, that we are seeing exactly the same types of behaviours and policies on both sides of the Atlantic. Absolutely. There's, there's a harmonisation. Uh, and what's interesting, when you the closer, and Andrew Mather, who we had on the show weeks ago, pointed this out recently in one of his videos. The closer you get to centers of power, that's where you see the explosion in COVID deaths. So Brussels, London, New York, these, these, are, these are the epicenters of the COVID crisis. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Outside of that, hardly anything. Okay, so isn't that interesting? And also this is where we see the radical transitions in terms of government, in terms of policy. Uh, in these same places, these same locations and epicenters. I thought that was a very interesting, we'll be following up more on that trend, uh, no doubt. Yes. Now, uh, Patrick, you took these pictures yesterday, um, and uh, it seems that we're uh, into the second wave of big advertising in the mainstream media. That was one you took. Well, uh, it's good to know, Mike, that the press is completely independent of government and uh, are, are totally thinking... Uh, yeah, on their own and not influenced by government. Every single paper is running these different rainbow ads. Absolutely. So you've got three there on the right-hand side. Let's look at another picture that uh, was sent by a viewer. Thank you very much for this. We can see every UK newspaper with the same government ads. Uh, what is driving? What we've mentioned was this, driving this. This is propaganda. Total. 
And we've mentioned what's driving this, but let's put it on screen again. This is uh, the News Media Association from a couple of weeks ago. Government partners with newspaper industry on COVID-19 ad campaign. The government and newspaper industry will have formed a three have formed a three-month advertising partnership to keep the public safe and the nation united uh, throughout the pandemic. And then you highlighted this article to me, which is a little bit uh, a week or so before that one. The government is becoming the UK news publisher's most important client. This is such a dangerous situation. Where is the fourth estate? So you have government basically coming closer and locked into corporate media. So corp corporations and government, corporatism. This is what Benito Mussolini called another word for fascism. Okay, so this is a really disturbing trend. And um, I picked this up. Here's one of these, uh, one of the offending items here. This is the Daily Mail. But what's worse, you open it up, Mike, and it's, um, it's a PPE horror show. You can see a woman in a kind of a bin bag with a with a, a perspex visor on and she's delivering your mail so and we're seeing these types of propaganda pieces basically this is what the newsstands become it's become a propaganda point of sale in every news agent in every supermarket it's where the government is using the newsstand even though newspaper sales are, are down they're not profitable uh, but they're using the newsstands as a point of sale for propaganda, just to broadcast messaging, basically. Uh, absolutely. Now, on Monday's UK column news, Brian uh, was highlighting a, a, a SAGE document uh, where the, their behavioural sub-team was basically highlight was acknowledging the use of the media to change people's behaviours uh, and really to put the fear of God into people in many cases. So we've written that up into an article now. Uh, you can have a look at that on the UK Column website. Please share that as much as possible because that this is what the British media has become, a propaganda outlet for the British government. Very important article there, Co COVID coercion, Boris Johnson's psychological attack on the UK public. Get that, share that, push that around on social media. There you have the evidence of the actual uh, operation. And uh, there's, there's no mistake what we're looking at there, Mike. This mm. is uh, complete coercion of the public using uh, tried and tested psychological warfare techniques on the public. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Um, we will be back at the same time on Monday. Have a great weekend and uh, we will see you then. Bye bye.